Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? Uh, my week wasn't bad. My son came home with a cold, and so it's given me a virus... And the way I know that I've got a virus is that my long COVID symptoms have flared, but not horrendously so. So I'm a little bit extra breathless. Uh, I have this kind of, oh God, I really can't explain it. It's like an asthmatic chest, but it's not really an asthmatic chest. Where I kind of feel that my lungs and my heart are not feeling quite right. And I felt a bit dizzy most of the week. Yes, and I'm getting a tightness in kind of the upper part of my chest, just below each shoulder. But I'm, yeah, it's not too bad. I man- I've been managing to walk. I, I really feel like I, I have become deconditioned. I know that it's a controversial thing to say, but I haven't been doing much because I've had about two months of ill health. And so I really just didn't do anything, not even go for a walk, just, just do my daily chores, you know, run those kids to school and but I was, it's mostly car, you know, I'm in the car a lot. And so I've been getting out and doing about 10,000 steps a day. And how does that feel? Fine. I don't really get PEM, I don't think. Mm. But I, the last couple of days I've just gone and done it because you know, my watch has told me to. Have you been monitoring your heart rate whilst you're doing it? Yes. Yesterday it was not great because I was having a bad day yesterday. My heart rate went up to about 150 the other days, it's not been too bad. Honestly, not too bad. Enough for me to get out and actually good to feel my legs feeling tired. Good. Which they haven't felt for a long time. I know nice. it's not a lot of... It's just just a little bit. Because I do feel like I've neglected my muscles quite a lot and then need to yep. get out and walk. I mean, your body tells you what you need. It does tell you what you need. And so I've been really feeling like I need to get out and do some exercise. Previously, I just didn't want to. Well, no, that was my body telling me not to do it, I guess. I just think it depends how much you listen to your body. You know me. Like after two, two days of not exercising, I even when I'm feeling really rubbish, I'm like, I really need to, I really need to exercise. I really need to exercise. I do definitely listen to my body now in terms of the level of exercise that I do. And I've found my level. But even if that, that's just going out for a walk. How was your week, sweetheart? It was much better than the previous week when we last spoke. So that that had been properly rubbish. It, it's been really up and down day by day. Yesterday I felt fantastic and today I felt like crap. And I can't necessarily see a pattern as to why. I, I would have thought it would be more kind of consistent in its progression. I've been telling you about some weird symptoms this week, haven't I? You have. Do you want to share them with our listeners? I've been having this weird shooting pain in my fingers that also at the same time I get a shooting pain in the top of my chest. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's long COVID related. When I've been trying to go to sleep, I've been having this kind of searing pain in my extremities, a weird pain as if I had been lying on my hands or when you sit on your feet. And it's that kind of weird pain of when the blood's coming back into them. It's funny you should mention that. I've been finding that when I'm lying down, one side of my body goes to sleep. Like, I get pins and needles. But you're lying flat, or when you're lying on that side? I sleep on my side, and normally it doesn't make any difference, but now I find that I get pins and needles. I'm wondering if we've just got a little bit of a problem pushing the blood to the areas that it's harder to get it to. 
Oh, and the other thing I've got, super low resting resting heart rate. Sitting down is sort of 47. It might just be because I'm now incredibly fit <laughs> from having this long COVID. But I think... I have a 47 this week. Have you? Yeah. I think it might also be a re- reaction to some of the drugs. When I had a bad day the other day, I did take fexofenadine. And I noticed that heart rate, it can be in either direction, but heart rate can be impacted by, I think, fexofenadine. Okay. Well, I've been taking the histamine regimen this for a whole week now, yeah. seven or eight days, uh, both famotidine and fexofenadine. Are reacting to um, viruses that the the kids bring home is actually something that we mentioned to this week's guest in this week's conversation. We want to speak to a virologist and get a handle on certain aspects of this virus. And we discussed the role of antivirals in both acute and long COVID. So this week we talked to Dr. Stephen Griffin, who's a virologist, but he also advises on the Indie Sage group. And interestingly, he mentions that Sage is now itself is now being disbanded, but it sounds like Indie Sage is still very much going strong. Yes, and some of our favourite people are all on that group, like Danny Altman and Kit Yates, Benita Kane. It's amazing how, like we say this, I think we said this last week, but how nice everyone we speak to on the show is we had quite a wide-ranging discussion about the state of the country in terms of covid and policy but here what we've chosen to bring you today is we've really focused in on the antivirals and the way this virus behaves in in our body with the view that we want to bring you some more information subsequently about various antiviral treatments and we've got a few great interviews um, coming up on that subject. So this is hopefully to provide a nice broad background. Yeah, this is a bit like a primer. And it, you know, an interview primer that will set you up for the following episodes that are coming up that go into more detail about antivirals. As a virologist, can you describe to us or explain your view of this SARS? Virus. Well, you know, the clues in the name, severe acute respiratory syndrome. Right. But the thing is, the thing that people keep fixating on is this, the virus changing. It's not about the virus changing. It's about the interaction between us as hosts with our immunity and our genetics, the virus and how that might change, and also our environment. So, you know, the dose you get exposed to, the drugs you might be on, your general level of fitness and all the rest of it. That's what dictates disease. Okay, so it's not true to say this virus has now become a cold. It's true to say that with the level of vaccine coverage and recent boosting that we've had, the majority of people won't suffer a severe acute disease cause. But that's less of a headline. (laughs) So (laughs) it's always a balance. And yet having multiple vaccines means that we should be far better protected against having severe disease. Of course we should. And we are primarily, you know, I I felt pretty rough for a few days. I've had long lasting breathlessness and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm I'm not in hospital. I'm not, you know, in trouble. But it's still noticeably different to most diseases that I've had. Do we have information on or or data on whether the changes that have occurred with Omicron have 
changed the version of long COVID or, and the prevalence of, of long COVID? Well, I think it's pretty clear that people are getting long COVID from Omicron. You know, that, that, that's because, you know, we've got the first Omicron cases in, in November, November, end of November. And now we're seeing that, you know, with the three month cutoff, if you want to be that black and white about it. But can you literally track that curve on I believe the long so, yeah. I believe so, yeah. I think that's been on some of Christina's presentations and deep teas on the Indie Sage thing. Um, yes, there clearly is. And also increased incidence in, in young people, as, as you might imagine, because of the demographics of this infection now majorly infecting younger school-age people as well, you know, and, and initially with Omicron in 20s, 30s. Hmm. And... <laughs> That really is troubling for me. This is absolutely being ignored by saying that we don't need to worry about prevalence. And because the the really weird thing about long COVID is that it doesn't always, there is an increased chance if you have very severe disease of developing long COVID sim- symptoms, but there's also a sort of post-severity issue there as well. And it all sort of merges into one. But for given infections, and if you have 100 people have mild covid he says in inverted commas then there's really no easy way to determine which of those people will will develop long covid or not uh, it doesn't seem related to the severity of those symptoms you know within that bracket short of being hospitalized so it really is hard to work it out and it has to be down to us therefore whether we're not clearing that virus whether we're reacting in a in a way that doesn't resolve the infection whether we're allowing it to persist or whether we suddenly developed some kind of autoimmune, autoreactive, autoinflammatory response that doesn't die down. Because probably one of the most important aspects of our immune response is how it switches itself off. And that that's absolutely something that needs to be well controlled. And if that doesn't happen, then you, you, you get all sorts of long term horrible diseases and things. So the fact that these things happen post an infection, which, you know, is a massive stimulation for your immune response, could be something to do with that. Or it could be a combination of all of these things. Hence syndrome. Yeah. Emily was slightly more severe than I was, but I really was not unwell at all. Mm. I didn't even have a fever, to be honest. Mm. And I'm mm. really debilitated. Yeah. And that is something that we kind of have to press on some of the experts that we speak to, mm. that the majority yeah. of people are more like Noreen. No, absolutely. No, we're very well aware of that. You know, what well, we should be. <laughs> it really is because I, I think we just have to be honest and say we just don't know what causes it. We can speculate and we can say... By me saying, oh, it's a function of viruses and your immune system and your genetics, that's me completely copping out, you realise, because it means I don't know the answer. <laughs> and and that's absolutely the case. We don't know the answer. There are people looking and there are some patterns emerging, but we won't be able to explain all of it, not in the not in the near future. But what we can do is we can assume, we can assume that there's an autoimmune component. We can assume there's a long-term activation component. We can assume that there may be a viral persistence component. And, and and act upon that. So what's interesting now is that people who have long COVID, we probably would like to be considered to have an underlying condition so we can actually access antivirals when we get COVID mm. again, but we're not deemed unwell enough to get the antivirals. <sighs> antivirals? Yeah. yeah, talk to us about antivirals. Because <laughs> there are s- several strands here. Mm-hmm. The use of them in long COVID, which we know is not approved, but there's also what happens if you have antivirals in the acute phase in the prevalence of long COVID. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, access to antivirals, which is the point that you made, first of all, I think is 
I, I don't understand it, right? I don't, there are all sorts of different things. But I think the reason that it has been restricted is that you do need to be cautious. The reasons that we need to be cautious about this is that if you think about the trials that have been done with Paxlovid, with Molnupiravir and all the rest of it, and indeed now more recently with Remdesivir, what they're saying is that if you have this course of treatment, you're far less likely to become very severely unwell and hospitalised. Very severely unwell and hospitalised. It doesn't necessarily mean that you won't get infected and keep becoming unwell and all the rest of it. There is no data, as far as I'm aware, on the link between the development of long COVID and people that have been treated with antivirals. I don't know of that data if it exists. You would hope that reducing the virus load by treating with an antiviral would help just in general, okay? But there is an issue where we know that sometimes these antivirals aren't reducing the viral replication. What you want to either do is not really affect it so that your immune response reacts strongly or really knock it down, right? If you have a halfway house, you you can sometimes do one and not the other and, and do neither very well. So we're seeing a lot of people relapsing. Mm, that's what I was going to say, this rebound. Yeah. That happened to my mum. That is happening because it's just a five-day course. So I'm going to do an Indie Sage session on this, actually. Please. We'll, we'll look forward to it. It'll be about access and all the rest of it. I think one problem is that everyone's looked at these drugs and said, right, it's done, done, right, it's done. No. Okay. And I think that there are lessons to be learned from the treatment of chronic viruses so things like HIV, Hep C, where a huge amount of investment and time has been put into treating these things with antivirals. There's a difference between treating something like flu or SARS acutely, because A, you have to identify people that become unwell really early to give it at the best time. What you're doing is you're kind of just dampening it down, hoping therefore that it doesn't then become severe, right? So In flu, there was a load of controversy around Tamiflu, for example, when the Cochrane did their analysis because they were saying, oh, at best it shortens your illness by one day. Okay, fine. But you have to identify these patients. You have to give it at the right time. And actually giving it systemically has helped lots of severe flu cases. But there's no trial on that because it's a really hard thing to do. So the evidence base is is poor. But there is a lot of, of research going into giving systemic antivirals in severe flu cases and all the rest of it but you can't possibly do a trial on that it's it's just impossible so when you're drugging a virus like this in the acute phase all you can hope to do is to just slow it down and that's all antivirals do is is slow it down and you can see that from the virus load data in the trials it doesn't come down that dramatically a lot of the time especially for molnupiravir okay paxlovid is more potent it would seem. And that's that's quite common in drugs that target the viral protease. It's, it's, it's quite a good thing. So this rebound can mean that you haven't quite done the job properly, getting it right the way down and sufficiently so that it's not going to then get a foothold. And the fact that it's only a five-day course of treatment, they do that for several reasons. One, if you're just using a single drug, if you give a prolonged course of treatment, you're more likely to develop resistance. The second is, as well, because Paxlovid is also packaged in with this other drug called ritonavir, which was originally an HIV drug. 
Ritonavir actually affects your metabolic pathways in your liver, which break down things, which then allows you to use more of the other drugs. It slows down the, de- the degradation of that drug. So that Ritonavir is not an antiviral. It's there to sustain the antiviral, um, the protease drug, so that you can use less of it and it long- lasts longer. But the problem is that Ritonavir, because it does that, it interacts with lots of other medicines. So that's a, a difficulty if you want to give it to chronic patients who are unwell and give it for a long time. Yeah, because there are a lot of interactions, aren't there? Yeah, ritonavir will not just stop the protease inhibitor being degraded, it stops all sorts of things being degraded. The drug interactions for ritonavir in the, in the little green book is, is huge. Why can't you just have the other drug on its own then? Because I think more of it? Well, all of the pharmacology and pharmacokinetics has been done with the ritonavir boost there. Okay. Because, right. you know, you always have a therapeutic window with a drug where you have an effect that is counterbalanced by a lack of toxicity. And you obviously shift that balance by having the ritonavir there so you can use less of it to systemically drug you so that you're not running into the areas where you might end up getting more toxicity in people. So that's the reason for using it. And it's a good reason to do it. And that's fine in short treatment durations. The problem may come when you start trying to treat people who are immunosuppressed, who are infected in prolonged periods and using this. And, you know, for that reason, the original remdesivir trials were controversial because they didn't really see much effect. Because by that point, if you've got severe COVID, which is mainly an immune driven problem, still with the virus there, the antivirals aren't going to make that much impact. So that's why we drug it at the beginning. Yeah, and that's the that's the key to getting in early, is that yeah. you're talking about the sort of shortening of the treatment mm. process, mm. so you're not exposed to so much of the drug. What happens if you have a double course then? Which I've read about people doing, people yeah. going back and having another course of Paxlovid after their first five days. The same infection. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, the longer you leave it, the the less effective it may be. The problem is the trials have been done on a five day course, and so the information that we have there is for that. Okay, we don't have any trials on on a longer period course. Well, they may be doing them. Okay. I don't know if that's published, um, but of course, we're going to get a real, real, real world use of that now as well. So that'd be good. The issue with these things is that they're not perfect. And they are just doing a job of, of preventing that severe clinical course, we hope, for many people. The, the things I worry about are A, access, as Noreen has just said, absolutely difficult for the right people to get it. But people should be entitled to this this help if they're clinically vulnerable, in my view. I agree that getting reinfected if you have long COVID should be a, a very good reason to have it. I think that's absolutely right. The problem is we don't have enough of it. I don't think we have enough doses to give everybody. And that's why the lists are so restricted. The second problem is that you wouldn't want to use these drugs on their own on a huge population scale because you will start to see resistance. What I think should happen is there should be trials done on combinations of these drugs. Molnupiravir is quite controversial because its actual protective effect isn't quite as good as we hoped when the trial had completed. Really? Um, but remdesivir, um, it's probably about a 35% reduction risk, I think, for molnupiravir, whereas the, the Paxlovid was down at you know an 80 90% improvement on severe hospitalisation cases. Remdesivir also, if given early, is very good at preventing severe disease. It's very good. But of course, you have to give that intravenously, which is not good. But ideally, 
you would want a combination of drugs to mitigate against the possibility of resistance, particularly if you wanted to treat people who had long-term chronic conditions. And the reason I'm mentioning this now is that if you start thinking about, which I'm sure you're about to ask me, the use of antivirals in treating people with long COVID. Yeah, yeah. because you keep saying the key is to treat early. The key is to get in there early. Well, that's the clinical challenge that people have chosen to address. And as you rightly said, that's that was our immediate concern during the first years of the pandemic to stop people dying and becoming hospital arrested. And so the reason that the, the remdesivir trials weren't praised was because they weren't really having much effect because they were treating the wrong patients almost. You know, the, the severe patients had become immune pathologized and it was mainly their immune systems that needed sorting out. That's why dexamethasone works so well. That's why IL-6 inhibitors work so well and all these other ones that we're starting to hear about. them. So we've got this disease, which in the acute phase becomes virus-driven and sort of morphs into a less virus-driven, more immune-driven problem. With long COVID, there could well be that same blend of virus-driven problems and immune-driven problems. It could be that one drives the other, obviously, because your response is a response. And so if there is a low-level virus infection, yes, logic dictates that using an antiviral to suppress that virus is a good idea. Of course, it does. That, that's a no-brainer, and I can completely understand what people are saying, but it's not as straightforward as you might think, unfortunately. Okay. Talk us through it. <laughs> okay, so first and foremost, antivirals don't eliminate things. They, they suppress. So what it will do is stop that virus making more copies of itself. It will stop it spreading from cell to cell. It will stop it doing X, Y, and Z. And so ordinarily, that's enough for our immune response to come in and kill all the cells that have the virus in them, okay? The problem that you might have, and and this is still quite speculative because we don't know, and people have reported improvements in their symptoms from having antiviral treatment, haven't they, anecdotally. Yeah, but I think also have reported what you've said in the acute phase as well, that it can improve and then... And this is it. It's because antivirals are not eliminatory drugs. They are suppressive drugs. So if your virus, let's say the scenario is that in long COVID, you've got this very, very low level persistent infection in tissue X that's still stimulating your immune system, which is making you feel unwell and it's having metabolic problems and neurological problems, all the rest of it, because your immune system misfiring is a bad thing. If you suppress that virus transiently with a a five or 10 or even 20 day course of antivirals, whatever, then yes, you probably may start to feel better again. But the minute that's taken away, that might come back. And the reason for that is that the reason this virus is persisting at such a low level is that obviously our immune response isn't able to mop it up. It's not able to kill that cell for whatever reason that the virus is lingering in. Okay, so without that, there's almost no point giving the antiviral apart from an improvement in symptoms because you're never going to get rid of it. It will come back. A good example, actually, is is hepatitis C. Mm. And hepatitis C is a fantastic success in drug, in antiviral therapy, because we went from giving people horrendous drugs that, that made you very sick for a very long time to giving people oral antivirals, and it cured people in you know, 90, 95% of the time. And that's a chronic, persistent virus infection. 
and that actually cured it didn't it didn't suppress it and maintain it as long as you took those drugs the people that respond are the people that they they restore their normal immunity in their liver okay so there's there's interferon signatures that show that the people that respond to those antiviral drugs are the ones that actually actively eliminate that virus gone some people don't right so you have to have the immune system still to eliminate the cells that have the virus in them. So it, it may well be that giving the antivirals is enough to just tip that balance to, to eliminate it. The problem would be that it may not be the case in everybody. As well, if you are to do this, you may need to give it for longer because people with long COVID or indeed people who are immunosuppressed who can't clear the virus may need that virus to be suppressed for longer it may then be harder for that virus to be eliminated because the immune system might not see it as well. So it really is interesting. What might work, and this is me again speculating, is combining antivirals with some form of immunotherapy to stimulate your immune system to eliminate long-term persistent virus infection. But of course, what we lack is definitive evidence that shows that there is long-term infection with this virus that's actually disease-causing. So this is the problem. The idea that these viruses stick around goes against sort of convention. We think of respiratory viruses of coming and going and, you know, we get rid of it. Actually, viruses go subclinical before they're, they're gone. We know that from other respiratory viruses. They, they, they're still in your tissues. They're just not causing a disease because you're finally wheedling them out and getting rid of them. So for a drug trial to do this with long COVID, if it's caused by persistent virus infection is not going to be straightforward. And the other complication is, of course, that if you're giving a single agent for a long time and that virus is still able to persist, then you are more likely to develop resistance. So you would want a drug combination there, definitely, would be my view. And the second aspect as well, as we've mentioned before, is that giving ritonavir long-term to people who might be immunocompromised or on other medications might not be a great idea either. So I think what we would need is to be able to identify a definitive link between people that have persistent virus infection linked to their disease, which is not going to be easy, but we could just bypass that and assume that this will benefit a certain number of people. The problem then is that if you want to get trial-based evidence, you need to pick your patient cohort really carefully. So you'd want to try and identify those people who would be most likely to benefit. So you need to try and skew your trial towards becoming successful, not, not in a kind of you know, naughty bias kind of a way, but, but you, what you'll do is you, if you don't do that, you need to necessarily have so many more patients in the trial to, to catch that cohort that it becomes a, a massive endeavour, right? So what you'd ideally want as proof of principle is a small scale trial with people that you know have persistent virus infection who also have long COVID symptoms and who then you could treat with this new antiviral combination that will require the drug companies being friends with each other and and seeing what that does. But then you would also have to establish the, the immune response of these people and how effective their immune yep. system is working and whether you need to then apply what you're suggesting is the opposite of an immunosuppressant is it oh yeah like the a complete inverse to to what some people are yeah, thinking you want, might be helpful in long COVID you want a checkpoint inhibitor type thing like you give to cancer patients you want an immune therapy mm. an immune 
driven therapy to push the depression yeah yeah definitely that that could work anyway that could just work to clear and that that may be why there's anecdotal evidence of people having their vaccines and feeling better from long covid because you're almost kickstarting the immune system it could be a kickstart specifically against that virus but it can also just be a, like an immune reset almost such a large stimulation everything just kind of kicks back in again it's about that immune system not quite being switched off is the major problem because you your immune response should be switched off after it's got rid of its problem and and if it doesn't do that then you start getting autoimmunity and things so that that is a, a problem it feels to me like there are just too many unknowns to start messing around with. Well, this is it. Yeah, I completely understand the clamour for for let's give everyone with long COVID packs of it. I do. Um, and in principle, yes. But I think in reality, we need to take it slightly slower. I do. Much as I would love to be able to just do it, I think it would, it would make a lot of sense. But it's probably the case as well, though, that not everybody that has long COVID symptoms is due to persistent virus infection. So it's tricky, it's challenging. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And anecdotally, both Emily and I have had our jabs. You haven't had the booster. I had the booster and had a really mm. bad reaction to it. Really? But the first two jabs were fine. I've had three. But I had long COVID before, so I got long COVID before the vaccines were around. And the vaccines didn't improve anything? No, the, va- the first two vaccines were fine. And I think I had a fairly good year, but then when I had the booster, it everything relapsed. Yeah, really mm. knocked you. And whereas both vaccines completely knocked me, like shattered my immune system. And I've been advised at this stage not to have the booster. But Mm. now I'm getting into the situation where I think maybe I just have the booster and suffer the however many months. It's it's, it's, It's that payoff. It's that balance of the suffering that I would get from the booster versus how long it might give me some protection. People have to remember that, and this is dreadful to hear, you know, the the fact that you're having a terrible reaction to these vaccines, it means that, again, it's about this genetic diversity and that most people, again, it comes down to this this, this normal distribution of responses, most people are fine. And for that reason, it's fine. Of course, some people aren't fine. And to understand why that is, is, is really important, but we don't. We just don't. My thing is that we now have long COVID in our system and so that the vaccines are then going to react differently to it if we didn't have long COVID in our system. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. The fact that it may be that your immune response has, has misfired to, to, to contribute to the long COVID. I'm choosing my words deliberately carefully here. Yeah. Um, could mean that your response to, you know, an immunogen that is based upon that same virus could could be problematic. But we don't really understand it. We don't. No. Remember, a vaccine is a, a different way of stimulating your immune system to a virus infecting you. And that's partly why we do it, because it tends to give a more vigorous response. You know, part of the problem that, that people talk about natural immunity, like it's something you buy at Holland and Barrett, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, the vaccine is, is more reproducible and more robust because we give it. And it's actually naturally what we call adjuvanted. An adjuvant is something that we would normally add to a vaccine to make the response that much more robust. And for that reason, we do get side effects from this. You know, of course we do. It's just really sad to hear that you guys have had such profound side effects. Too. We, we, we also don't talk about it too much on mm. here because we mm. are 
vaccine advocates and we do want everyone to yeah. get vaccinated. Yeah, and it's also not just the vaccine that affects us. We any infection any virus. That the kids any virus really? that the kids bring home will give Trigger us a crash. Since since you've had long COVID yeah. and it's made you it exacerbates your symptoms. Oh, horribly. Yeah. Oh, dear. If someone gets a cold, you don't just get the cold. You get all of the other long COVID symptoms. So for Noreen, it's the mainly cardiac. Mm. Um, and for me, I get these migraines and various other things. But, yeah, it's interesting the way our body deals with other viruses now. Do you know much about the Evoshield? Evoshield. Mm. We were talking to Professor Richter about mm-hmm. her patients are immunocompromised. Mm. And I, I, she's a big advocate for trying to roll it out to at least to the immunosuppressed population. Yeah. But again, yeah. the government doesn't seem very interested. <laughs> but do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it, you think it can work as a prophylactic? Yes, theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. Of course, how long it would last. And if you then had a, a variant that was evading Evershield, it would be for nothing kind of thing. Whereas the vaccine gives better protection across the board because it's based on Wuhan. Um, yeah, I think for clinically vulnerable people, that sort of prophylaxis when prevalence is high would be sensible if there weren't other options. And I know that that people are given monoclonals as acute therapy and that works very well. So Rupert Beale, who I know quite well, works at the CRIT, but he's also a kidney doctor and he, he uses monoclonals in his immunocompromised patients. There's lots of, um, he, he's published several Lancet papers on kidney transplant patients, for example, and, and the use of monoclonals there and the responses to vaccines as well on different immunosuppressive meds. So the problem that we're having here is that, again, all of these people talk about people with underlying conditions or immunosuppression. It's actually a vast number of people, right? And it's, it's being completely ignored. And I, again, I completely disagree with, with doing that. I think... Something like that is obviously really amazing, probably on an individual basis in terms of if they're going to be exposed and given prophylaxis. The thing is prophylaxis, you've got to time it right and you've got to make sure you use the right prophylaxis. So not being clinically qualified, I, I wouldn't like to say, yes, we should give everybody Evershield, right? But I think it's a really good, important weapon for certain people, definitely, yeah. So... Certainly, if there's no other option and if you've got absolutely, you know, limited immune systems and there's huge prevalence, then yes, give it. Absolutely. But the problem is that the way that they're assessing these medications at the moment seems a little bit haphazard. But I think that actually also encompasses the whole of long COVID. That's pretty mm. much where we are with long COVID as, mm-hmm. as a whole, because yeah, that makes sense. Y- yeah. You're, you're trying to pull all these things in together, but you don't have that basis yet to say exactly yeah. what we should be yeah. doing. And I think, I think it's really important for scientists to say they don't know if they don't know, <laughs> because we don't, I mean, that's why we still, that's why we stay as scientists and don't just do it for six months, because we, we just don't know these things. And that's why we have to research them. I thought that was so interesting, the way that he describes the antivirals reducing, suppressing the virus to a degree. But I honestly, we've we've done a lot of reading, we've spoken to a lot of people, and I did not realise until now that it does not remove the virus from from your system, I don't think. Did you? No, and that's my main takeaway. It's like one of those things when 
you have this assumption antivirals will get rid of the virus. It's right? because it's called an antiviral. You think it's yeah. gone. And it's the same, I think it's the same for a lot of people when they talked about the vaccine, they thought they would have the vaccine and then they would be immune to COVID. It's not what it did. And in the same way, antivirals, antivirals are not a cure for a virus. They just help dampen down. Yeah. Which is then reliant on our immune system being sufficiently robust thing to, to then rid ourselves of it, which I don't necessarily think is the case. Exactly. And subsequently doing a bit of reading and, and talking to other people, like most antivirals don't clear a virus. No. So that's, I think, something important for our listeners to know. And really fascinating his point about creating a and something we've heard from other people that you do need to bring in potentially multiple antivirals to clear it. Basically, people, we can't just all be reaching for the Paxlovid and expecting that to cure us. That's right. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.